Welcome to The Kingstonian, a podcast that profiles people who are passionate about what they do for a living, what organization they belong to, or the community they are a part of. Here is your host, Dave Cunningham. Thank you, Steve. Hello, everyone, and welcome. There are many communities that are blessed to have some sort of public foundation dedicated to understanding the needs of and improving the well-being of the citizens around them. These foundations typically receive gifts from donors, manage the pooled assets, and distribute the income as charitable gifts. Our guest is the newly appointed Executive Director for the Community Foundation for Kingston and Area. He has over 25 years of experience in fundraising, development, and nonprofit management. In this episode, a look at his journey to this position, his enthusiasm, and his passion for bringing donors and receiving agencies together. Here is our conversation with Stacy Kelly. Stacy, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for giving us some time today. Thank you so much. It's really wonderful to be here. Before we get started, we should tell the folks who are listening that this particular episode is being recorded in mid-April 2023. I want to spend some time talking about the Community Foundation for Kingston and Area, a very important agency in this community. But let's begin with how you developed a passion for this industry and We'll begin by going back to when you graduated from Queens back in 1996. And I'd like to know, you had a degree in philosophy, and I'd like to know at that particular point, what did you think your career path was going to look like? What a wonderful question. It's actually great to ask that that little fellow if he remembers. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so 1996, I came out of Queens philosophy and uh, wanted to stay in the city. So I actually ended up working at Trailhead Kingston, which uh, is still going. It's moved, but I was the uh, the manager there, and I was starting to you know think about about career. And uh, one of the things I did think about is potentially continuing on in sort of the retail world, expanding you know even into the U.S. Um, and uh, in August uh, twenty or sorry August two thousand, uh, Queens came calling, but this time with an opportunity to engage in. Uh, recruitment and admissions. And I thought, well, that would be a really wonderful uh, blend of my talents. I enjoy public speaking. I enjoy connecting with people. And I'm, you know, I have a deep affection for Queens. So it was a, a new opportunity for me to, uh, you know, to grow that way and uh, begin with, with, you know, with little did I know, begin a career in what is, is, is called institutional advancement um, that, uh, that really started at that moment in time and way back in 2000. There's something I'm sort of curious about. I went to Queens as well, but I was at Kingston, and I finished my high school here, so I just applied and, and got into Queens. And when you are a recruiter for students, and I assume we're talking students from outside the city, from outside the country, what's that process like? Is, is it like recruiting players for a basketball or a football team? Yeah, that's a great analogy. I uh, had the great real privilege and pleasure to travel all across Canada, so every province, a number of uh, states in the Northeast, and uh, about 25 other countries to represent Queens. And uh, particularly when I was traveling through Canada, it really was, I used to always say the sort of joke, but it wasn't really a joke, which was I was really going out there to find Queens students. I wasn't trying to encourage everyone I met to apply to Queens. It was really trying to help people make really good choices about the type of opportunity, type of experience they wanted to have at university. And I thought that Queens had its own 
special sauce, which is why I chose Queens. And it was really trying to find people who might, you know, similarly be attracted to what I thought was a really interesting uh, and engaging student experience. So uh, it was, yeah, really helping people, meeting with parents, meeting with counselors, and of course, meeting with uh, youth uh, in high school to hopefully inspire and educate them and help them really make the best choice for them. How would you describe the special sauce that Queens was offering at the time? So I am uh, grew up in Quebec, and so... Uh, Whereabouts in Quebec? In uh, the Oudouay, so okay. the, uh, which is in the West Quebec, and uh, I grew up in a small hamlet called Breckenridge, and then we moved to the big city of Elmer, uh, which is now a part of Gatineau. But, uh, um, and uh, my first love in terms of university actually was bishops. I thought, oh, that would be a really neat place to go. And a lot of uh, friends who were, as I like to say, running away to go to university... And college, we're looking at McGill. And, you know, this sort of, what was I, 15, 16, and I kind of came to the conclusion at that time, again, this is this is the late 80s, that Queens kind of had that prestige and academic reputation of a McGill, but really the campus feel and kind of close bonding that you would see at a bishop. So I thought at that time it was kind of the best of both worlds, and that was really a big influence on why I came to Queens. Was there a difference in promoting Queens to uh, potential students from across Canada as opposed to uh, students from outside the country? Yeah, students outside the country were certainly much more interested in understanding uh, the ranking of the institution. Like Rankings were a really big deal overseas, more so than, than in Canada, uh, and certainly was a, important in the United States, although I must say people in the United States were quite interest in understanding sort of what kind of experience Queens was offering, but definitely overseas. And I get it. There are literally thousands of universities to choose from. So understanding where your university placed in comparative rankings was was a key tool. At least it was a door opener for the conversation. Uh, at that time, I was recruiting for the Queens full-time MBA, which had um, gotten a uh, you know number one ranking from Business Week. So that was a power, powerful lever for me uh, when I was overseas. Now, after you finished your time at Queens, at least initially, that would be around 2010, 2011, you moved to OCAD University. And for those of us who may not be too familiar with that particular institution, would you describe it for us? Oh, OCAD is a really special institution. And uh, it started as the Ontario College of Art, uh, then became the Ontario College of Art and Design, and then um, shortly before I joined, became uh, OCAD University, which is uh, uh, which is how it goes now. But but some of the folks, you know, from previous generations still lovingly refer to it as OCA or the college. It really is, uh, it's Canada's oldest and largest art design university. Um, and, you know, some of the, if you think about a lot of the ad campaigns you've seen over the past 50 years, uh, logos, you know, package design, the vast majority of it have been um, grads from the design department at OCAD. And I think also some of our, you know, most well-known painters uh, either studied there or taught there or sometimes both. So it, uh, you know, it, 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 it is proud to be, I think, really the incubator for a lot of the great sort of Canada's cultural, you know, assets. And uh, it was a great experience to be there and and be part of advancing that that very unique institution. Is it a big institution? What would the student body be like? Oh, you're getting me there. I, I mean, it was it, no. It's certainly a small institution, yeah. especially by Canadian standards. I, I think you know at the time around maybe five thousand full time students. Um, yeah, 
And so it certainly had grown, I think, during my time, certainly since I've left, but definitely a, a smaller institution and, and really focused on, um, you know, arts and, and design. And, uh, and uh, there are some also liberal, liberal arts, liberal studies programs. Now, a lot of the information that we're talking about with reference to you, I gleaned from looking at your LinkedIn profile. And the impression I get, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, if your experience at Queen's was focused on more recruiting students, uh, for instance, here at OCAD, it seemed to me that you were working more with alumni. Well, I did do a transition when I was at Queen's into uh, an admissions recruitment role into uh, what we call, you know, in our field advancement. So uh, which was on the fundraising, development, and alumni relations side. And that really began at the School of Business at Queen's. Um, and then I went to work at Central Advancement at Queen's uh, in a campaign role. And so when I uh, moved over to uh, OCAD in Toronto, yeah, it, it was really primarily focused on development on my relations and, and really helping them to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, sort of you know, shore up and re- reimagine and re-energize alumni relations at OCAD University. And so... Uh, that's why they brought me in uh, there, and I, I had a number of roles in that department and progressed up to become uh, associate director, and was um, you know a, a, a key player in what was then the uh, Ignite Imagination campaign for Oakland University. So it was really exciting times. I, I will say, you know, very fond memories of Oakland, and it's such an interesting institution. It's it's while it's a university. I, I think a lot of its friends and, and patrons and supporters also see it as a cultural institution. It's not, it's, so we had similar donors that you would see to the Art Gallery of Ontario, to the Garden Museum, uh, even to the you know, Royal Ontario Museum. So it, they really see it as sort of a, a cultural institution that's creating you know, the future of art and design. And so it was a really, uh, really unique place and really, really enjoyed being part of that and met some extraordinary colleagues who I'm still in touch with to this day. Now, when we talk about alumni, we talk about folks who, after they've graduated, get letters from the university or the college or wherever they went, asking them to uh, kick in some dollars periodically to help support the institution. How important is it for an institution, whether it be Queen's or OCAD, to get that kind of money coming in from alumni? What proportion would do you think, do you have a sense that uh, the university relies on alumni donations for its uh, sustenance? Well, I think it's really important, and I know it's very complicated in terms of the funding of universities. It's, uh, so, uh, it, but the truth is, is that the kind of the aspirational piece of any institution that you care about, the, those aspirations, the reach for excellence, the reach for something new and innovative is actually largely only funded by donations or grants. So, you know, um, while we are all publicly funded institutions, that's really sort of base funding to, to kind of keep operations. It often doesn't sort of fund excellence, and the, each university has to go and seek funding, and sometimes that's granting organizations, and, and in many cases it's, it's private donors and individuals and families who are supporting, you know, that, again, looking on the horizon uh, to fund uh, what, what's possible and what's next. So the truth is, is actually very important um, because, you know, no no 100% funding is ever going to come from a government source, for example, or even a research grant. It, it has to be a combination yeah. of those sources of funding, um, to, again, to really push the university. And sometimes it's programming. Um, very many cases, it's a student aid, scholarships and bursaries. And sometimes it's, you know, I was happy to be part of, you know, funding something like brand new and... Uh, you know, before I left, I was able to be part of uh, funding a brand new master's program 
Um, and okay, that, that completely was underwritten by an endowment created by a family foundation. And so, you know, that would not be possible. Those students now, those future leaders in that field would not have been possible without the those private funders. Mm-hmm. The support of the alumni and other people. Uh, about five or six years ago, you uh, changed jobs and moved over to the 519, which is an institution, organization I've never heard of before. Uh, describe what it is. Oh, well, the 519 is a very special place indeed. So the 519, uh, the formal name is the, the 519 Church Street Community Center. Uh, it's Canada's most prominent LGBTQ2S community center and service provider. Uh, it's really a, a, a real rock of an institution. It's a Canadian leader in advocating, providing programs and uh, services uh, dedicated to uh, LGBTQ and 2S communities, as well as its local neighborhood of downtown Toronto East. It's it's an anchor. It's been there since the 70s. And uh, I was the director of philanthropy there and had the great privilege to work with an incredible group of passionate and committed uh, staff and volunteers and, and donors who really care about advancing you know, genuine inclusion and social justice. So, yeah, um, extremely, extremely fond. And uh, while listeners can't hear it, uh, you can see the pictures of uh, my former teammates who are in my desk uh, just to remind me of where I've been and uh, where I'm going. And uh, uh, those those years there were very, very uh, formidable for me. And uh, we worked hard. And, and, of course, that's when the pandemic hit. So mm-hmm. I have the pandemic memories of our time there and, and that we never stopped operating. We never closed. Um, we just kept being there for community. And uh, it's a really special and unique place. In light of some of the other experiences you've had with respect to career, how did this one differ from the universities that you worked with before? Well, at its heart, the Fountain is a community center. So, you know, you as a as a fundraising professional, sometimes you can be you can be somewhat removed uh, from some of the direct impact that your work is doing. You know, by bringing in those resources and and, and hopefully inspiring, educating people to to get get on board with the cause, as we say. And in this case, because it was a community center which was packed, you know, seven days a week uh, with the programs uh, and and the participants and community members, you really just saw it. And, um, and, you know, I would also get engaged at times and, uh, you know, have a chance to work, work with folks and just really be on those front lines, especially during the pandemic. It was, uh, we all switched to an essential services mode so that we could be there for community because we were, you know, I remember, I remember back to that March, whatever the exact date was, but March 2020 and we were in the existential crisis was how does a community center continue to help community when you can't have them come in the community center? That right. was really the existential yeah. question. And I'm just so proud of what we did to respond to that question. It was, you know, I used to joke about, you know, well, there goes, you know, shredding the <laughs> the annual plan because all of a sudden, you know, for those who studied business and talk about disruptive forces, there was never ever quite the disruptive force like this. And we just realized that the North Star was community and service and need and that we had a moral and responsibility to be there. So we did. And I'm uh, I'm so proud of that incredible team and the incredible leadership there, and, um, and and we showed up every day. A major exercise in thinking outside the box with respect to the pandemic and how to deal with it. Absolutely, because we had no handbook, right? There was no, yeah. you know, I was part of the director's table. There was no handbook that said, oh, by the way, you know, in case of a, you know, <laughs> shutdown of everything around you, here's what to do. And so uh, I really, you know, I have to give credit to our executive director, Maura Lawless, and 
our senior director, Becky McFarlane, and, and others who just, I thought, were just extraordinary leaders through what was a really challenging time. But again, when you're united with a purpose, you can just see, you know, we all came together and, um, as I say, showed up every day for, for the community. And uh, I'm really proud of that time. And, and I will also say, you know, we, we doubled our donors in, in that year. So people also really stepped up um, to support what we were doing. I, I think we did a good job of telling the story of what we were doing and why we needed help. And, and uh, thankfully, uh, people stepped up to that call. Mm-hmm. That brings us up to last August when you arrived back in Kingston to take on this new role with the Community Foundation for Kingston and Area as its executive director. And for those folks who may have downloaded this particular episode who don't live in Kingston, don't live in Ontario, may not even live in Canada, can you describe a little bit the origins of this particular foundation? Yeah, the origins, um, it actually goes back to the late 80s, but this organization was officially founded in 1995. And uh, uh, folks in the Kingston region will recognize some names of the founders. So people like uh, Michael Davies and Evelyn Flint and Jeannie Rosen and many others uh, were were heavily involved. There was a sort of group, this group of, of people who came together to realize that if we together, we come together as community members to really better our community and what can we do to make that happen. And um, for those of you who are maybe not familiar, the Kingston Harbor is dotted with what are these Martello Towers built in the 19th century, and the origins of the foundation were as the Martello Society. So it was this, you know, this sort of symbol of sort of very, very Kingstonian symbol, and, you know, this, the limestone tower, that kind of stability and, and, and support, and um, there, I think there was something powerful there. And the idea being, how do we come together, um, pool our funds, um, and support important causes in Kingston to make life better. So that grew into a formal uh, foundation, which essentially pools money that is donated um, into into invested funds that can then grow over time, and most importantly, grant out funds um, annually to charities around Kingston. Uh, to date, we've supported at least 240 charities in the region. And uh, I think it's just an extraordinary accomplishment to see um, that early vision of a few people coming together to say, what can we do? You know, we're seeing issues, we're seeing problems, and uh, I'm really trying to do something about it. And so I'm, I feel very blessed to be joining now as we approach our 30th anniversary uh, to honor the incredible work of those who've come before us as uh, both uh, the staff and leadership board and volunteers who at the end of the day, it's about sort of how do we curate these sort of made in Kingston solutions by Kingstonians, by other people in our kind of greater Kingston area to say, you know, and I want to do something there. These are the charities and causes that mean something to me and I want to support them. Where would this organization fit in the context of other groups in town that do something similar? And I'm thinking of United Way as an example. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's actually quite a few uh, foundations or what is known as a public foundation. There are private foundations in Kingston. Um, Yeah, there's wonderful organizations like the United Way. Um, I think the the biggest difference really is what I was alluding to, which was the vast majority of of donors and families and organizations that engage with us create funds here that they then... um, um, that we then take those capital, the capital of those donations and invest over long, long term. So these are funds held at perpetuity uh, so that we can provide ongoing support to m- many, many charities. 
There are other, other things you can do with us. So you could do flow through gifts where you can make a gift to us so that we can t take care of your philanthropic wishes and redirect to your, the charities of your choice. And there are some people who have their own name funds and they have very specific charities in mind that they want to support through their endowed fund. Um, and other folks have what's called a donor advised fund. So there's a little bit more uh, conversation with us on an annual basis in terms of their selecting the, the funds. So I think there's a number of different ways to engage with us. Um, your audience may like to know that there's a quite a host of funds hosted that support the Kingston Symphony, for example, that support Camp Outlook, for example, Pathways to Education. Uh, um, we have a wide variety of fields of interest, and so chances are there's probably a, a charity that uh, that we're working with or have supported. So you already answered my next question, <laughs> so we'll go on to something else. The, I'm curious to know the size of, of the pool that you're working with. We currently have about $30 million in investments. And uh, that's that's roughly 240 funds that have uh, been set up by Kingstonians and, and folks in the greater Kingston area to, again, it's about funding what matters to them and funding, you know, change, um, funding action and uh, making sure that we're supporting the charities doing the incredible work. I, I, we are, I like to say, you know, quite humbly, we're a conduit. We're a conduit between, you know, our donors and our passionate community members who want to make a difference in Kingston and, and, and surrounding areas. And, and we help facilitate their giving, their passion, what matters to them. And that sometimes to, you know, direct gifts. Um, I'm certainly working a lot with folks who are planning their estates, you know, who care about sort of legacy and really thinking, again, it's always about what comes down to what matters to you, what means the most to you. Um, how do you want to continue to making a difference um, even after you're you're no longer with us? So given the fact that the organization is uh, celebrating 30 years of existence, so you walk in the door last August, what were your first priorities when you had a look around the office? I think uh, I'd like to think I brought, I've come in and, and I'm great, grateful to the board for saying yes to me, uh, bringing in, you know, aspirations for the foundation. I think there's nothing but extraordinary potential uh, to take the foundation to the next level, to be, I think, a real uh, leader within the city and the charitable sector, to advance our charitable sector, the capacity of our sector. Uh, I really want us to be seen as an asset and a toolkit for organizations uh, for for professional planners, for example, lawyers, financial experts, and and also the the industry itself, all of the charities. I think we have a role to play in advancing them, their knowledge, um, their capacity. So, in order to do that, uh, needed to really um, hire some great new talent uh, for the foundation, which we have been doing. So, really, in those first few months, it's really been sort of shoring up the uh, some of the internal pieces to get us ready. We have uh, implemented a brand new, very important software for us. Uh, you know, for those in the business that you know, donor, customer, you know, customer relationship management database CRM. Um, that is a game changer for the foundation. It will enable us to do some things and engage with our supporters in a way that has not been possible. So, you know, some of those kind of, you know, maybe inside baseball, but really important. As I like to say, uh, we're building a new plane on the runway. We're hiring the crew. We're getting to make sure that the plane has the right equipment it needs, and then we're going to be flying soon, and I'm really excited about that. And hopefully you're not flying out of Fort Lauderdale. <laughs> indeed, indeed. As we record this particular conversation, there was some really serious flooding in Fort Lauderdale, which closed the airport for a day or so. Um, 
Your duties would involve, I would guess, a lot of communicating. Spend a lot of your time communicating with donors, with uh, agencies, with people that work for you, people that you want to work for you. And would that be the the prime thing that you'd be doing in your position right now? Yeah, that's a great that's a great sort of summary in terms of you know there's that sort of internal look to make sure everything is is uh, going well operationally, making sure we have all the right assets, and that's humans, <laughs> people, 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 and uh, technology, and then really that sort of external focus of oppor- opportunities like this um, and others to have conversations and to spark dialogue about how people might want to engage with the organization and. And yeah, I really enjoy uh, meetings with our, I've been meeting with a number of uh, current donors and uh, meeting with, you know, some prospective donors. Uh, and that includes agencies. I, I failed to mention, we, we also hold agency funds. And so, uh, in, in other words, there are charities that have their fund with us. And so we have, that's one of our value adds is we have the capacity, of course, to manage and hold and, and grant from funds. So um, these are all really engaging. Uh, I've been calling it my rediscovery tour. As you alluded, I did live in Kings for the better part of 20 years, but was gone for 11. And, and there certainly have been some changes. So I've been really enjoying this rediscovery tour to um, 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 better understand the current context. And then again, how the Community Foundation can play a role in, in that. If we think about the recent declaration you know, by the city of a state of emergency for Kingston, then that to me is a clarion call to all of us to think about how do we help. I've been thinking about sort of, you know, it's a made in Kingston. We're not always going to get the help we want or expect from external sources. So what can we do as a city, as a community to step up for, for each other? And I think, I, I think we have a role and duty to be part of that conversation. And I I think that's something that um, I'm very open to and, and, and we've already been having some dis- some important discussions around the city, and we want to be an important partner there. So it's very important for the foundation to be addressing what uh, the community needs in, t- in terms of, like you just alluded to one, you know, some of the information coming out of City Hall about what the community should be focusing on. So that's something that I would guess would change over time depending upon what circumstances were out there at a given point. Yes, and, and, you know, just to go back to our previous conversation, it was probably one of the greatest lessons I had from being at the 519, which was we're going to do our annual plans. We obviously have strategic plans, but at the end of the day, we, we need to make you know, strategies also about the things you choose not to do because you need to do other things. And it was always about what was emerging and what was emergent community need for us in our context in downtown East. And so I bring a similar ethos here, which is, you know, what are those what are the signs for those people who are interested in sort of, you know, sort of signs and trends and sort of that environmental scan piece or, you know, even sort of future, you know, future planning, future scenarios. We have to be listening to what our community is telling us. Uh, and that's how, to me, we can be a responsive and responsible community foundation. What sorts of challenges did the foundation go through during the pandemic? I know you weren't here, but I'm sure there are notes somewhere that maybe you're compiling a manual to address this going forward and putting it on the shelf somewhere. But um, do you have a sense as to what sorts of things the foundation did try to do during the pandemic to continue its work? Well, certainly, you know, the pandemic was very challenging uh, operationally, right? Uh, When you have to, this is very much a small team 
small office-based team, and then sort of the sort of the, that implosion that happens with with the pandemic and people being scattered. You know that affects, you know that affects culture, it affects relationships. It certainly, I know, was a challenge in terms of, um, you know, how do we how, how do we? Oh gosh, now we have to think about how to operate our organization in this new model that we'd never thought of before. So you know, I, and I know uh, uh, I know they handle it with aplomb, and they. That you know, we all had no choice but to figure it out. So certainly, I know that was a, a big thing. And I, I think, though, that uh, my understanding is that uh, donors were well aware and understanding of uh, what was going on uh, in the greater context and understood, and and certainly the board did as well. Then that there was a need to respond to urgent community needs. So I know that there was interesting partnerships that happened with uh, the foundation and other foundation. And, and again, I think the dialogue with with our friends United Way, dialogue with, with um, the city. So I'm aware that um, you know they did what was right, which is reaching out and figuring out how do we help during a very difficult time. And uh, you know, um, all, you know, all credit due to those who came before me. But I think again, there seemed to be a similar response, which was we need to do what's right. Mm-hmm. You've been in the job eight months or so. What's the favorite part of your job? Oh, meeting with donors. Um, I love hearing from them about what matters to them and learning about their stories. And, you know, always grateful when people share those stories with me and, uh, you know, why they came to this particular decision and moment in time and to engage with us. And, um, yeah, it's, it, you just, it's about connecting with each other. Mm -hmm. And again, I, I know I'm repeating it, but it, it's, it's always about sort of what matters to someone and what what's meaningful to them and why they want to make this particular decision. Um, I'm always moved by it, and I'm moved by the spirit of generosity, and I'm moved by the um, great, great love that people have for this city and region, uh, which I did. You know, I I came to Queens at the tender age of seventeen, and uh, I, I can tell you, um, it was love at first sight, and not just the university, but I made a very decided point to always wander around and much to I was quite chagrined many of my fellow students didn't seem to leave campus but I I really explored Kingston right away and I fell in love with all the historic sites and and just the place and uh, um, it's a love affair that never ended so for me it's uh, it, it means the world to me to be back yeah Kingston is one of those places I'll agree with that. That's for sure. Uh, There are many foundations like this one that are located in different communities, as I said, around the country, around uh, the world. And I'm curious, as it relates to this particular foundation, what's one thing that the people who live in this town don't really know about the foundation that they should? That it's funded by fellow Kingstonians. Um, It's not a government entity. It's not a city entity. It's funded by... Um, folks like you and me, <laughs> um, you know, partners, families, individuals, organizations. Again, to return sort of my opening comment is about who really want to make a difference in the city by creating funds that, that continue to support the city on an ongoing basis. And I think that's what's really special. It's really sort of for Kingstonians by Kingstonians. It's very much a made in Kingston solution. We are part of a network. Uh, as you mentioned, there are um, at least 199 community foundations across Canada. And if there's any listeners in the United States, there are definitely community foundations in the United States. It's a, it's a beautiful model of, again, citizens coming together to collectively solve their community's issues. Best way for people to contact you if they want more information about the foundation? I'd be delighted to have conversations. Uh, if you want to do some initial digging, 
at www.cfka.org or you can call us at 613-546-9696 or email directly. It's ED, stands for Executive Director, ED at cfka.org and I'd love to have a conversation. And we'll put that information in the liner notes to the podcast episode as well. I want to thank you very much for your time today and all the best going forward in your efforts to make sure this money is uh, directed to the right places in the community to make it a better community. Thank you so much. Together we can make a difference. I appreciate the time today. Our guest in this episode, Stacy Kelly, the Executive Director of the Community Foundation for Kingston and Area. The contact point Stacy mentioned can be found in the liner notes to this podcast. Thank you for listening, and I'll be back soon. The theme music for the podcast is Stasis Oasis, written and performed by Kingston musician Tim Aylesworth. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about any of the episodes, please send a note to the Kingstonian podcast at gmail.com. For details on upcoming guests, follow us on Facebook. Kingstonian podcast is hosted by Dave Cunningham and produced in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Mm-hmm.